In this interview, I'm joined by Amoda Ma, spiritual teacher and author of books such as Embodied Enlightenment and Falling Open in a World Falling Apart. Amoda Ma shares how her troubled upbringing, including secretive paternity, abuse, and financial instability, saw her fall into a profound depression with multiple suicide attempts. Amoda Ma discusses how psychedelic experimentation led her to leave her PhD and embark on seven years of homelessness and consciousness exploration in the London drug scene, experiencing mystical states and healing her trauma through therapies and personal practice. Amoda Ma recounts her travels in India, joining Osho's ashram, and subsequent awakening, which she describes as falling into the abyss of being. Amoda Ma also reveals why she thinks the egoic state of humanity has come to a peak, and why each person must hold the line of presence and openness in an increasingly divided world. So without further ado, Amoda Ma. Amoda Ma, welcome to the podcast. Thank you, Steve. Well, I'm very delighted to be speaking with you today. And uh, thanks to uh, Kavi, uh, your husband, who uh, proposed you. And uh, I've been diving into your books and your various, uh, so many videos you have out there, really fantastic stuff. So I'm so excited to get to, to, to discuss with you uh, the specifics of your life and, and teaching. Um, I wonder if we might start with your early life. To quote you, you've, you've said of your early life, my early life is a story of hardship, a lot of trauma, a lot of drama, a lot of unexpected events right from birth, a lot of shocks as a child, a lot of unknowingness as to my ancestry, my parents' roots, my culture, my ground on an earthly level. Where's home? Who am I? What am I? So I'm wondering if you could talk to us a little about your early life. Wow. So I have to dig into my uh, memory banks for this one because it has so faded. That is the truth. It has so faded. Um, so let me see what I can pull from, uh, from the early childhood. Yes, it's true. It was... Uh, full of unexpected events, full of unexpected information or lack of information. Um, right from birth, um, I didn't know who my father was. Uh, I understood many years later that he had left uh, around the time of my birth. Um, there was a lot of secrecy. I think that's more to the point. There was a lot of secrecy about who my father was. I wasn't told that he'd left until I was eight, uh, 13 years old. Um, so my reality kept shifting. Um, and there was a lot of, like I say, hidden hidden uh, information um, that would have been normally the ground. Um, so I was brought up in a kind of shroud. That's how it felt. Um, and so I, 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 I seem to remember that from an early age, I turned my attention to something other than the earthly form of a father. I remember once saying to my mother, I think it was about seven years old, I don't have a father. God is my father. 
and she slapped me <laughs> um, because I did have a father, a stepfather. Well, actually, he was a foster, uh, uh, my adopted father. He adopted me. Um, and, and yet I still had the sense that I didn't have a father. So there were lots of mysteries in my life, which caused me to look outward and inward. Um, I'm sorry about that. Can we cut that ping out? That's my... It didn't come through, actually. Oh, then cut my words out. <laughs> I'm just shutting down my messenger. Okay. Um, so lots of mysteries and um, that kind of kept the ground shifting. There was never really any ground. So I was always a kind of questioning child about who am I? Uh, what am I? <laughs> um, and that kind of thing. Um, I spent a lot of time alone. I spent a lot of time in solitude. I had no brothers or sisters. Uh, and in fact, my adopted father um, was many, many years older than my mother. So came from a very different generation, a very different culture, um, and had experienced uh, actually three wars, <laughs> two world wars and another war that we were in when I was a, a, a child. And so he had a very restrictive um, outlook on life. So I wasn't allowed to play. I wasn't allowed to have toys. I wasn't allowed to have birthday presents. So I felt as I was growing up that I, I lived in a shoebox. That's what I would say if you know, at some point when I was about 18 and I went to university, I was so strange and so inward and so isolated. Um, and so I, I just, the only way I could explain it that it was that I lived in a shoebox. Um, then there's many other things I could say about that, uh, the kind of shocks and revelations and traumas that my mother went through and a certain amount of emotional and even uh, sexual abuse, as far as I remember, um, and very sudden things happening. The war was a big one. I was 13 years old uh, when a war happened uh, close to the Middle East, where we were living for a couple of years, and that was a big shock. I, I was mute. I mean, literally, I wouldn't speak. I didn't go to school. Um, we were evacuated with no possessions. We lost our home. Um, so that was a very big shock. <laughs> All of these created more of the shoebox feel. Um, and a long period of time of depression, clinical depression, suicide episodes. So my childhood was quite strange, really. <laughs> Uh, and, and on top of it all, my, my parents didn't speak English very well. <laughs> my mother was from Cyprus um, and her English language was pretty rudimentary. And my adopted father was from Germany. And although his English was very well, he was well educated. Um, it had a thick German accent. And between the two of them, they didn't communicate well. So what happened to me in that, I really don't know. Um, I, 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 I went inside. It's very interesting. 
Why was your father hidden from you? Well, that's the big question. Um, I think I found out or, or learnt after many years and really when I was in my 30s, perhaps 20s and 30s, um, when eventually my mother and my adopted father uh, were no longer together, that was a big trauma as well, um, that the culture that my mother came from, at least as it was when she was giving birth to me, which was in the 60s, was, was, was rudimentary. It was a Greek Orthodox culture, but close to the Middle East. Um, so it had a lot of shame that, you know, women were repressed, uh, women were married off with arranged marriages, women were not educated very well. Um, these are things I didn't know at the time, but I, I've come to find out, and, and now it's a modern country, and uh, it's not really like that at all. Women are emancipated and all of that. But in those days, it was a big curse on the family and shame on the family that my father had left me. Um, it goes further back than that. She was married under unusual circumstances. <laughs> uh, again, very shameful. Um, so she had to be hidden. She had to be hidden. So she was then married off to uh, uh, a German man who was working for the RAF um, and sent packing to the United Kingdom which is where I was actually brought up. I knew nothing about my Greek roots. Um, uh, and so nobody told me. <laughs> it was a big secret. <laughs> what do you think, looking back now, with the perspective you have now, was the impact of, of that secret on you growing up? I had to keep myself hidden. I always felt there was something wrong with me. I felt, um, again, I have to dig quite deeply for this. <laughs> I don't feel this anymore, but um, I think I made myself invisible. I mean, partly because of that, uh, but partly because my father was so um, restrictive and uh, had many rules about my behavior, um, most of them to restrict my natural expression. Um, so... Yeah, I, I, I felt that um, there was something lurking in the background and somehow it was my fault, which it was because my mother got pregnant with me. Um, and my father left her because she got pregnant. Uh, at least that's the story that I know. Um, so it made me very quiet, very uh, unexpressive, very in my head, uh, very insular, very, <laughs> you know, all, all of that. 
Very interesting. And uh, another theme, I think, at that stage of your life, you're now talking from your childhood right up to your 20s. You've sort of you've been discussing certain things that happened there. Um, you mentioned suicide attempts, etc., and a period of deep clinical depression throughout your 20s, teens, late teens and 20s. Yes. Wondering uh, about your educational path, because all during that time, you were actually pursuing um, quite, quite a, a rigorous academic track. Uh, so I'm wondering if you could talk a little bit about that. What was your education like starting young and straight up to you're in a PhD program, actually? Um, so yes. I'm curious if you take us through that arc as well. Um, well, I, I was lucky and I'm always thankful for the fact that I was adopted um, because my mother didn't have much of an education. Um, she, was a, she's, she was a lovely, sweet woman, but, with, but without an education. Um, and I think had I stayed in the environment that she was brought up in and with my biological father, who was also, again, as far as I know, not very educated, um, I would not be the person that I am now. Um, I probably would have been married off and, uh, you know, straight away and all of that. Uh, none of which ever appealed to me. Um, so I was lucky in that my German father, uh, in bringing my mother and me as a small infant, I was only a few months old, over to England, uh, and he was determined that I had a good education, did put me into good education. Um, and so I, you know, that was, and I was very good at that. I loved it because I was so alone and without friends and without siblings and uh, a lot you know gave myself to books and reading and I had a natural affinity for all of that so I, I, I very quickly got good grades now of course all that came to a, a great big uh, crashing brick wall when in the war um, I actually went to a very good school in uh, Cyprus where we lived um, that was an English speaking school and the education level was really high and I got to the top of the class which was great and all of that and my father approved of me so he loved me and that was all very nice for a couple of years and then the war happened and that brought a great big end to it and we got evacuated to the inner city of London which is where we'd lived anyway but uh, schooling came to an end I couldn't get back into school I was like I said mute traumatized my father was traumatized my mother was traumatized we were homeless for a while um so we had to take care of very basic needs. Um, and so I didn't go to school for about a year. And then when I did go to school, I was so far behind. And the school that I went to eventually was of such a low standard as some schools in, in England can be, <laughs> as well as the, the other ones. And I just got sort of lost there. Eventually, I sort of pulled up my socks, so to speak, and managed to get myself into another school, um, getting good grades. And that was great until, <laughs> until my parents had a terrible, um, it wasn't even a divorce. It, they, they got violent with each other. My father became alcoholic because he'd lost his job. Um, and I, I was 
pretty much abused by by him as well which was a shock because he seemed to turn against me and by the time I was I think 16 17 studying for my A-levels I think and Oxbridge in fact um, that came to a crashing halt and once again I couldn't finish my studies and uh, ended up uh, when I did pick up again which was some time later by then I'd gone into suicide mode my mother didn't know about it I kept it hidden um, but I couldn't get back onto my A-levels and I couldn't get back into university. I mean, I, I was applying for Oxbridge uh, and that was a huge uh, loss for me at the time because my whole identity was right, wrapped up with that, getting good grades and going to a really good university and uh, getting the approval of my father. Mind you, he wasn't around by then, uh, but I still had that lurking. <laughs> And so when I finally managed again to pull my socks up and get to university, it was at the lowest level, if you like. I managed to get in by the skin of my teeth. I didn't go to the university I want to. And I got sort of channeled into a topic um, or a, a you know, degree course that I wasn't interested in, experimental psychology. I was interested in psychology, not experimental psychology. So it just got me back, you know, more into my head because it's all experiments and statistics. And so depression really set in and I didn't know how to break out of it. And my mother had, you know, she, she didn't, she was hands off by then. My father had, uh, well, she kept me away from him. So I didn't see him anyway. I was scared of him by then. And so this black period, how I managed to get through it, I don't know. I just studied. I mean, I have an excellent memory, so I can memorize things. <laughs> Is that intelligence? I don't know. I don't, I, I don't, looking back on it, not really. It's memory. I can memorize. I mean, yes. And I did eventually um, get onto a PhD program. Again, I was slightly diverted off my true path um, or what it felt like. And the only reason I did that PhD was that I had a glimpse of freedom <laughs> that came during my uh, psychology years because I had a boyfriend who was a long distance runner. In fact, he was a triathlete and I was not. I was completely, like I say, in my head, cut off from my body and there was no way I was going to do any exercise. But somehow I managed to, to do some running and he took me on these incredibly long runs way beyond my fitness level somehow I managed to get into it and I got a high I transcended myself I mean I literally had a moment or a much longer moment of no self but I had no context for it I had no idea what was going on except that it was a very much a transcendent experience and I, I knew that and that led me on to to um to put a proposal, proposal into my uh, psychology department on the relationship between the transcendental experience and long distance running. And they threw it out <laughs> because it wasn't experimental enough. And uh, there were no other studies in this. I managed to dig out about four studies that were all in America. 
and that got me into the America thing. <laughs> I've got to be there because it's much more cutting edge. Um, but I managed to do it. I managed to convince them. And then uh, it dragged out far too long because we got lost in statistics. It got lost in taking blood samples and measuring endorphin levels. Again, none of which I was interested in. I was interested in the transcendental experience as a as a way of going beyond self, more on the transpersonal level or the spiritual level, although I had no context for it. And again, it got diverted into a whole load of other stuff, you know, like I say, statistics and, and, and you know, physiological, you know, uh, endocrinolo endocrinological chemicals, yeah, endocrinology. Um, and uh, again, depression set in and, uh, so on. <laughs> uh, actually, I never completed that PhD. It went on for so many years and I had no support in it. Um, and my results got hijacked by uh, the uh, scientists I was working in with. And, um, and then I had a major breakdown and a major breakthrough on a spiritual level. And that completely changed my trajectory. But it meant that I never completed that PhD, which at the time was a great, um, it was both a blow to the ego and uh, a release for the ego. Yeah. Yeah, very fascinating. Thank you for discussing these things so thoroughly. I, you know, I think it's important context um, for the trajectory of your of your life and your, the way your path has unfolded. And also contextualizes, I think, some some later questions I might ask you about integration of awakening and, and so on and so forth. So I appreciate it a great deal. How were you supporting yourself during this time financially? It seems uh, the uh, lack of stability from the home, if you like, must have been very difficult to make your way uh, during that time, especially with the workload and also struggling as you were with clinical depression during that time. How did you support yourself? Um, yes, well, actually, the, there was never any much uh, financial stability in my home environment ever since I was a child, um, uh, right from the beginning. I mean, my mother was totally dependent on a husband, then she was dependent when he left uh, on a father, but her father had a stroke from the shock of her her husband leaving and me having no father. So really she had no support herself until the German father um, kind of took us to England, but he, he was unlucky. So he, he lost a lot of jobs and money. He was an excellent architect, um, but somehow that was never fully recognized and lo he lost money. And um, so it was kind of an endless story. I, I, like I said, I never had toys and I never had uh, things. Yeah. I was, even though we lived in London, I, I was kept away from things. So we didn't really have that. It, it wasn't part of my background. So I got used to having not very much. As for going to university, once the initial grant ran out, I had to live on pretty much nothing, which I did. I don't know how I did it. I, 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 I managed to scrape through. Um, housing was always an issue. Um, uh, you know, when I got into running, I also got into um, 
what was the great big craze at the time, I don't think it is anymore, but uh, aerobics. Aerobics had landed from America to England. And uh, actually there was um, a very large space in the uh, university um, where I started to teach it. I mean, strangely, because I, like I said, I'm not a physical, I wasn't a sporty person, but I, I trained with a woman who had just come from America, who trained me to teach. And I did, and I just did this in my lunch hour and it gave me enough money to live. <laughs> I mean, it was really cash, you know, cash to mouth, <laughs> literally. Um, I lived with a boyfriend who took care of some of the, the shelter <laughs> side of things, but I really scraped through um, until I didn't. And there came a point where I didn't when the PhD crashed and uh, my emotional state crashed and uh, sort of went completely the other direction into the spiritual inquiry kind of, <laughs> um, uh, you know, spiritual search, I should say. Um, I literally was homeless and penniless, and I lived in the uh, underbelly of London, which was a whole new experience that I hadn't been in. So that was a long period of maybe about seven years where I was in a very different world from academia. <laughs> I mean, literally, uh, you know, eating a box of crackers, you know, over several days and uh, doing some dodgy you know, in some dodgy situations, <laughs> um, uh, but I managed to survive. What is the underbelly of London? <laughs> no one's actually asked me about this. Um, I'm going to be careful what I say, not that there's anything to hide. The underbelly of London that I entered was one of, really it was an arts culture, um, pretty much like the probably the New York scene in the 70s. Um, there were some incredible artists um, and there were some incredible drugs, essentially. And I managed, because I was homeless, I, I uh, uh, there was a building, uh, again, much like the New York lofts that was uh, filled with, I wouldn't say down and outs because they weren't, but they were, uh, like I say, the mix of art and drugs um, created a, an interesting landscape that I wasn't even aware of up until then. You know, I was a, a pretty much, like I said, a, a self-contained and protected, uh, not protected on, on a financial level, but protected from, uh, I, I didn't smoke, I didn't drink. I was, you know, I was just an academic. That was it, uh, a depressed academic. But that's it. I didn't even go to see bands or anything like that. I didn't socialize. Um, and suddenly <laughs> this other world opened up and I, I learned to be nobody. Nobody knew who I was. Nobody knew about my background. Nobody knew about my academic education. I was still struggling with the end of the PhD then. It eventually sort of just, I just let it go or it let go of me. Uh, but I was trying to hold on to it. Um, but I was kind of an anomaly. Um, but I learned to be nobody. Uh, you know, and that started a deeper inquiry. Who am I? And that unraveled a whole load of things about my past and my childhood and uh, 
feelings that I'd never been in touch with. So it was a very rich period in that sense, internally. And it was a very um, uh, uh, empty or poverty-stricken <laughs> period on a, on a material level. But I don't regret it. One of the pivot points at that, in that time period was what you've described as an inner explosion. You've also described it as a partial awakening. And uh, you said that elsewhere that you were at that time taking quite a lot of LSD. Um, and in fact, working with the Tibetan Book of the Dead, working through that, uh, uh, using the LSD and combining that. I'm wondering actually if it was the Timothy Leary, Ram Das, uh, or Richard Alpert handbook that you were using, or was it? Yes, uh, it was actually, yes. Yes. Yeah. Yes. It was like a sort of conglomeration of. Uh, factors it was like rivers from being very straight very hidden very self-contained very self-conscious uh totally in my head and the only world i knew was my academic work i mean i literally went to my little cubicle every day and studied and wrote and researched and went home and wrote and researched and yes i had a boyfriend and we went running that was about it <laughs> um that was the high High, high life was my, my running. <laughs> um, and I taught aerobics at lunchtime and that was it. Um, and then something happened. A number of things came in. Uh, I don't know how the LSD thing came in, uh, you know, a connection of a connection and being the innocent, I don't smoke and I don't drink and I don't take drugs. I said, why not? I'll try this. Um, it was also MDMA culture. So that was part of it. Um, and then it just went bang, that together with the transcendental experience from running, I did step into TM for a while, because I, I think it was the running experience. And then I saw this board in the underground, London underground about transcendental meditation, transcendental, that's the experience I had. So I went to some of their meetings, and I started to practice. Um, and so those three things came together and it opened up a whole new world. Like I said, the world of self-exploration, the world of energy, the world of, um, you know, what's beyond the material. And that kind of reconnected me with some natural knowing as a child. Yeah, and, and, and then it just took me on a long journey through the outer poverty, but the inner richness, yeah, started to develop. During this um, period, you mentioned during this sort of period of experimentation with LSD, it's when this this pivot point you've you've described from academia into this into this other culture occurred, and you said that one of the reasons for that was it became clear to you, it was revealed to you in the LSD uh, journeying that the main motivation for your PhD was sort of uh, approval seeking fundamentally. And uh, that while that's not a problem per se, you've said, um, it somehow took all the motivation out of it for you, it took the wind out of the sails for you when you'd seen that, that driver, that motivation. Yes. Um, yes, yes. I, you know, I had a genuine interest in depth psychology, um, but like I said, 
I didn't go down that way. You know, I was interested in Jungian psychology, transpersonal psychology, you know, what is the soul and those kind of questions. But I didn't go that way. So I went into experimental psychology and that basically sapped me dry. <laughs> yeah. Um, and that in combination with seeing that one of the main motivators was approval, that I had to get a PhD because that's the only way I could have an identity. I had no other identity um, because I had no social life and I had no family life and so on and so on. Um, and I had no material life. Uh, so my identity was totally invested in that. And so, uh, and with that was the approval of the father, even though there was no father there. I hadn't seen him for years. Um, so it was just revealed very much like uh, Ram Das, uh, who in his LSD experience uh, saw the ego, uh, you know, the ego's mechanism or the ego's identity in the academic role. And I, I just saw that too. Um, and it just really literally pulled the wind out of myself. That together with the incredible challenges I was having completing the PhD in the way that its statistical form wanted me to, um, which was kind of in complete contrast and conflict with my natural inclination. Um, just brought it all to a great big halt. And, and I spent many years processing that um, because I was so close. I was like three months away. Um, we even had the final examination set up and I published loads of papers and, you know, in, in, in medical journals and so on. So I was really close. And it was, so it's a huge blow. Um, but it was also a huge liberation one that took time to digest, but a great, um, you know, the need for approval fell away. The need for recognition, which is why I could then sort of go into a whole underworld as nobody. I mean, really, I, 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 I had nothing to pin myself on. I was vacant. Well, I don't know if I was vacant. Maybe I was, I was empty, <laughs> empty. I felt empty. Uh, no, I hadn't got anywhere near non-duality or spiritual inquiry by then, but it was sort of a, just a natural non-identity. <laughs> what kind of age range are we talking here? These seven years in the underworld? My thirties. And um, you mentioned, I've heard you mentioned that in your experimenting with LSD in the, the, Tibetan Book of the Dead, uh, as it's presented in that guide, um, Timothy Leary and Richard Alpert guide, that you were actually able to go through that process. So the premise, of course, is that you can go through these bardos uh, uh, in a way using the uh, LSD journey. I think that's something of the premise of the handbook, the psychedelic handbook. Maybe you can, be more, I mean, you, being having done it, you can be, I suppose, correct me on that. But you also, you've said that you're able to actually glimpse the clear, the clear light at the end of that process. So uh, could you talk a little about that? And um, also, um, yeah, this, yeah. Would you mind saying something about that process? And, and then I'm, I'm very curious about, about what happened next, which, which I'll ask you about. Okay. Um, well, let's see. 
You know, it wasn't actually really a process. What happened in this period of time was that I naturally was very open to, or perhaps it was like it, the emptiness that I was experiencing because it was empty of academia. It was empty of identity. It was empty of uh, doing any job or any career. I, you know, I wasn't working at all. Um, uh, it was empty of uh, most of the conventional interactions of society, other than going to the shops and getting some food. Uh, I spent a lot of time alone somehow it opened and reading um, it opened me up to a wealth of what seemed like innate knowing I mean some of it was informed by reading because that pointed me and guided me in certain directions like uh, the, the book of the dead and many other books um, some of it was it just sort of totally resonated with my own experience, but there was an innate knowing. So in terms of recognizing the clear light, it's more that I would have those experiences spontaneously and then read about them and go, aha, that's what it is. So I, I, I do remember one specific, and some of them were, during an LSD trip, let's say, um, and some of them were not. I seemed to be in a constant LSD trip. <laughs> I was very wide open and seeing way beyond the ordinary reality. Um, but there was, I remember a, a moment or maybe many, many, many moments and, and journeys and experiences. I was actually able maybe because I was in my mid-30s by then, maybe because I'd had a certain, uh, you know, I, I did read deeply. Um, and maybe just a natural affinity or depth, I think. Um, LSD never became a problem to me. It never became a scary thing. I think once I had a strange experience. It always took me to the clear light. Um, not always, but fre frequently. And I was very, I mean, I guess I was still, I have a natural, uh, I wouldn't say scientist, but you know, I, the, the way that I could be in my academic work, I could be with my experiences. Um, they weren't just getting lost in pleasure seeking. That's not what I was interested in. Um, I could see the mechanism of how LSD, for instance, and meditation um, really face you with what's happening in your own mind. So by being very still in the mind, and there was a natural stillness in my mind, 
as there was when I was a child, because I would fall into stillness quite easily. I was able to be in that stillness and that opened the door, if you like, to the clear light, which was going beyond self. And I could see around me other people who were, you know, playing around with LSD would have all these incredible and not so incredible, you know, horrifying images and uh, emotions. And, you know, it was really scary. And I could see how that was a play of the mind. And I could see how that was the Bardo realms. Yeah. <laughs> um, that's really what happened. And so when I did uh, then sort of take my journey towards the meditation path, and uh, really the LSD fell away by then and, and everything else fell away, and, you know, um, sort of had served its purpose. I was able in meditation to also navigate that, yeah? <laughs> to navigate the inner psyche, if you like, and to be empty of content or to see the, the, the emptiness that is primary yeah. and and that started me off on a much deeper path <laughs> yeah very interesting you, you've also said during that time perhaps in the later half of that time you engaged in a lot of psychotherapy psychospiritual explorations metaphysical explorations and meditations of various kinds and meditation other Buddhist meditations. I'm wondering um, if you wouldn't mind giving a bit of a summary of some of the things that you explored in that. And it sounds like you were immersed actually really in many things, but what were the sorts of things you were getting up to in, in that, in that side of, in that, that side of stuff? Yeah. So, so there was, it was almost like there's two roads going together. There was the, the kind of meditation and, you know, sparked off by the LSD, but then more deeply into meditation. Um, uh, and then there was a lot of, uh, I had to work on my personal stuff. Yeah. <laughs> um, it had started emerging, you know, everything that had been pushed down and, and denied started to come up, mostly through relationship. Um, I was in a very dramatic relationship um, sometime during that process. And that brought up a lot of things to do with my mother, my father and you know, my feelings, my emotions, and so on. So I did a lot of therapy, um, a lot of psychosynthesis. But the main thing was that I did a lot of body work. So th th the thing that really opened things up was rebirthing. Um, I was literally in a bookstore. You know, the old thing of a book falls off a bookshelf and lands in your hands I mean it really was like that I just sort of looked up and this book was half hanging off and I picked it up and when I read it it was like wow wow <laughs> and it was a book about rebirthing by Sandra Ray and she happened to be in London so that started me off and I went and I had the most incredible experience on the first uh, rebirth. Um, I had a cord seemingly around my neck and I couldn't breathe. And that 
got me in touch with my birth and birth trauma and then that opened up the whole story of what happened at birth and my mother's story and my relationship to my mother and my relationship to my father or no father so that really started all that off and so there was a lot of rebirthing a lot of breathing that got me into my body um uh i can't remember what else but that was kind of you know i i i i i I tried everything, everything that was around. <laughs> uh, primal therapy for a while, like I say, psychosynthesis that uses artwork and symbology and astrology and everything you could put your hands on. I had tried. <laughs> wow, amazing. You know, you said primal therapy there. Um, I don't think I'll include this. I'm just telling you as an amusing anecdote. I, on one occasion was uh, inquiring about renting a venue for somebody and uh, the person was the one he had one caveat which was not primal therapy <laughs> because they'd had a primal therapy group there you know the shouting and the screaming and so on and he said that the police had been called and wow. his poor venue owner was traumatized by primal therapy <laughs> yes well it, yes catharsis is uh, <laughs> noisy uh, noisy <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Uh, yeah amazing you know, you've you've hit on something there, which I was hoping to, to ask you about, which is your personal stuff, your personal issues uh, that were emerging at that time. And, you know, of course, you've described your childhood uh, quite uh, difficult, uh, let's say it that way, and uh, to put it mildly. So I'm, I'm very curious about what sort of what sort of stuff was coming up? What, what were you identifying? Also, I'm curious, you know, these days there's various different trials done using different uh, psychedelic drugs and even MDMA, for example, for PTSD. For, I think there's a trial going on, at, at, could be at John Hopkins, I think, uh, with uh, MDMA, with uh, war veterans with PTSD, et cetera, et cetera. So you're sort of in that milieu at a very a time of, of great fluidity in yourself, it seems. So I'm curious if if you had any any sense of uh, the MDMA, for example, contributing to any kind of uh, softening or opening up of of those sorts of things, and indeed, what sort of issues were coming up in your relationship? What have you discovered was the consequence of your of your difficult upbringing, and how how did you manage to navigate through that? Thank you. Well, you're asking me questions I haven't really been asked for uh, in this way before, which is wonderful because it's. Uh, <laughs> bringing a certain richness, I suppose. Um, well, let me first say that, yes, uh, then, which was the early 90s, this um, perhaps new modality of using psychedelics like MDMA or uh, other substances are used, aren't they? I don't know if ayahuasca or ibogaine and so on. Um, are used in microdoses as psychotherapeutic tools in a psychotherapeutic context. No, I didn't have that luxury. I think if I had in those days, it would have been very, very valuable. However, I sort of did it with myself. It sort of happened naturally again. Um, I did have some contact with um, uh, somebody who was pivotal in London to do the very early, uh, uh, doing the very early research on MDMA as a psychotherapeutic tool. tool. 
um, now he, he's, he's not around anymore. He died quite a few years ago. Um, but he was pivotal and was doing, uh, going to Switzerland and America and various places. So, so it was around, but sort of in the latter stages of my own sort of experimentation with it. Um, so I was aware of set and setting, if you like, um, that it's not just a party drug, although I, I've done a lot of that as well. Um, so what did it do for me in this rather sort of haphazard way? It wasn't formalized. Again, I found, again, perhaps just because of the time of my life and my own background and uh, my own sort of inclination, I found that it allowed me to really just experience myself as myself without any self-consciousness, without any fear. And I realized, I think very, very viscerally, how much fear I was carrying and how much that fear, which was really just a buildup of all the traumas and shocks I'd experienced, um, how much that fear had locked me in and created the depression and the suicide and so on. Um, and without the fear, actually I felt love. Not love with an object, but just a state of love. And that prior to that, I had never experienced love. Even in relationship, I didn't experience love. I was kind of almost a... Uh, a facsimile of myself, you know, in my 20s, I was very attractive and beautiful and men used to like me. So I'd be in many relationships, long-term relationships, but I never experienced love. I, it was like I was going through the motions. I used to feel like a Stepford wife, a robot. I wasn't there. I might look as if I was there, but I wasn't. I never felt it. And it was only after MDMA that I knew what love was. So it kind of opened my heart and gave me meaning that in combination with the rebirthing and other bodywork modalities. Um, but without fear, I was totally present. And I remember people around me would remark, uh, you know, people in the, in the environment I was living in and, you know, the uh, music world my boyfriend at the time was a music producer would remark on the incredible difference between you know the two amodas I wasn't a moda then I had a different name but you know the two me's and that the me that was opened up through MDMA was actually not lost in some hedonistic or uh, I don't know whatever it is world but was actually very present and very open. And it gave me a template of who I really am. And so when I went to various psychotherapeutic modalities, especially the psychosynthesis, we played around with that. And it gave me a feel so that when I eventually did stop taking MDMA or anything else, I started to embody that natural self 
more easily, <laughs> yeah, or, you know, more authentically. So it was a great template. It was a great opening. Um, what was coming up at the time? It wasn't on the MDMA. That 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 just kind of erased everything. I was just normal and here and awake, and I was just love, <laughs> you know. Um, there was a kind of inner authority of love and intelligence that, that was natural. But what came up outside of the MDMA was through my relationship, which was incredible pain, uh, incredible disempowerment. I felt so powerless in relationship. I felt so powerless in life. I felt small. I felt like a victim. I felt... Uh, unloved and that sort of you know was played out in my relationship <laughs> very interesting indeed thank you um, at that time you also reported you've also reported having out-of-body experiences and mystical visions I'm wondering if you could talk a little bit about that aspect of that period. Well, this was very unexpected. Um, and, and, it, and it wasn't, I mean, it probably was catalyzed by some of the psychedelic substances I was taking because it just opened me up. You know, I felt my chakras popping open. I, I, I had a wealth of insights and ancient wisdom come to me which then would be confirmed in the books I was reading um and this was just happening boom 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 and 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 there was a kind of period of time maybe it was just about a year or two years where I would literally have out-of-body experiences it was complete surprise there was a time where I, I I was hovering above myself uh looking down there was a time where I became or, or knew myself. I was located as, as, as a point of consciousness, having a bodily experience. Um, but this is where I was located. And there were about three times over a period of a year or two years where I spontaneously um, had visionary experiences that are still with me today and have actually, even though for many years I didn't forget them, but it, they were just put aside as experiences and no thought was given, no great importance was given to it. But over the years, I can see how that, those visionary experiences inform my work now, especially since the pandemic. Yeah, the visionary experiences were visions of the future. And I knew they were at the time. They were, it's like I entered a future reality because there wasn't, although I had lots of stuff going on with my relationship and my, my family past, which had to be purged and, you know, catharted and resolved and brought to the surface. At the same time, I, I was quite, again, I say it, empty. Yeah. Um, empty of identity, empty of uh, 
egoic certainty <laughs> uh, yeah I was kind of maybe because I'm I I, I have five planets in Aquarius <laughs> I, I, I feel like air <laughs> I, I, I'm probably not but I feel like I am the sky <laughs> and and so because of that I was very open and um I seemed to be open to time there was no time it was all past future now all happening now and so I, I I seem to have future based experiences in the now that gave me uh, a portent for <laughs> again something I've not actually ever spoken about directly uh, a portent for the splitting of the worlds I experienced a splitting of the worlds and I knew in my depth, but I couldn't know how or when or the details that the world would somehow split in two. Um, and then there was another one, which was the follow-up. Well, what do you do about that? How can you be with that? And I experienced uh, the transformation that takes place as you remain as presence and openness in the midst of hell. And that's both personal and it's collective. And I see that being played out now. And then I, in much more detail, quite a few years later, had a very in-depth visionary experience, visceral, yeah, visceral, not just, yeah, in, in here it was, yeah, I felt it, of walking through the valley of death. And <laughs> it's quite detailed, so I won't go into, into it. And you, it's, it's in some one of my books. Um, but I saw the resolution to not only my suffering, the root cause of suffering, but to humanity's suffering. And once again, presence and openness. And it was after that, sometime later, that actual awakening out of the dream of self naturally spontaneously came about and in retrospect that was the um, actual energetic release that was being pointed to in the visionary state and that was it I never really thought about it much again after that uh until recent world events um, have brought to light in myself that this was a portent of our times. <laughs> and so it, it naturally informs, I mean, if you read my writing on Facebook, I do a lot of writing posts quite in depth and, and posted on my website uh, a lot of it alludes to this but it's the core of my teaching anyway presence and openness in the face of hell in the face of fear in the face of terror and that's both personal and collective well that, that was 30 years ago or 25 years ago, <laughs> yes. those visions, yeah, amazing. Yes. What, um, this dynamic of splitting, the world being split in two, what uh, current events are you seeing as um, 
related to that splitting? Well, most obviously the division in the world, the division that comes from taking sides, uh, opinions, yeah? uh, living in America, left and right, <laughs> uh, which is now a collective <laughs> experience. Um, so fundamentally that, the incredible division in the world, the incredible division uh, of those who are, <laughs> up until now anyway, for vaccine, for vaccine, against vaccine, and so on and so on. We can go on and on and on, yeah? And I see that as a, as a splitting, um, but also uh, more, more than that, uh, those who are giving themselves to fear, and those who are not. Now that's not about taking sides or believing in this or that, but the vibration of fear and the vibration of not fear, which is holding the line as presence and openness. Yeah, You could say it's awakening and not awakening, but I don't want to spiritualize it in that way. Yeah. It's, it's, you know, every human being, whether they've fully awakened in terms of self-realization or not, can uh, uh, have the capacity yeah, to remain as presence in the midst of inner and outer narratives and remain as openness in the midst of that which seems to be so terrifying. We all have that capacity. It may lead to awakening, or it may be a sort of gradual awakening, if you like, but we don't have to be on a strict spiritual path to that. And that's what the world, I think, has come to now, that opportunity to be this, to remain as beingness and not get pulled into the division, which is a reflection of the division of the egoic self, the divided mind. And I see a splitting in that. Yeah. Um, yeah, there's probably more, uh, and I don't know how that's going to manifest. I have two questions about what you said. First of all, this splitting, the world split in two, this theme, um, you've given several, I suppose, expressions of that dynamic in current events that you see, different polarizations, I suppose you could say or different sides that people are taking. Do you see any one issue as the central or catalyzing issue? Or are these all just symptoms of a sort of, um, I suppose, era of, of splitting? And then the second question is regarding the, this, these options of being in fear or via presence and openness, not, not in fear, let's say. Um, is that a binary thing or can one be say 52% in the presence and openness direction still experiencing a lot of fear? Is it, is it, a, is it where one points oneself, for example, or is it, so is it a destination or a, a pointing or what? Uh, maybe you could say a little bit more about that and how someone might sensitize 
to that in themselves? Now, I, I, I don't think speaking specifically about world events is, is what, the, what the resolution is here. Yeah, that's not where I'm coming from, yeah? What, what I think in answer to your first question, the, the, the catalyst, uh, if you like, is that these world events are reflecting or are a symptom of, is that the egoic state the divided state of humanity has come to a peak, has come to a crisis point, has come to a bifurcation point. In other words, a point of maximum stress, both individually and collectively. Individually, we see it as the amount of stress, the amount of fear that people carry in their ordinary lives, not just to do with the world events now, but in general, yeah, it's an egoic state that's got nowhere else to go. It needs to evolve. Now, we can't wait for the whole world to get onto the non-duality path. <laughs> so it's, it's happening as, as an evolutionary impulse. Yeah, and then collectively, obviously, we see that divided state in the state of the world, the division between rich and poor, uh, haves and have-nots, uh, um, you know, all stratas, yeah? Those in power, those in not not power it's come to a peak it seems and now the world events are are, are are reflecting that so i think the catalyst is from within i think the catalyst is consciousness itself or humanity itself yeah now at this point of maximum stress something new can evolve so the amount of fear that we're seeing in the world, which is also being reflected back to us through media and information and so on, everything's fear now, fear this, fear that, fear the other, fear the other, yeah? And so each individual is being brought to that point where there's a possibility, and not everyone's going to, yeah? take this possibility to see that fear is a thought. Fear is a thought of the future. And that the only resolution to the incredible suffering that that brings is to hang out. Yeah, we could say, hold the line, yeah? this phrase that's used, but it's an inner line. It's just to remain right here without jumping into what if and but, and this is happening and that's happening and that's going to happen, yeah? But to hang out here because this is endless. So here's an opportunity for awakening in each moment out of the egoic tendency, the egoic reactiveness jump to future yeah future moment yeah which creates an incredible agitation for the individual a great incredible agitation in the nervous system incredible stress incredible trauma so everyone's living in a state of trauma yeah? so here's the opportunity so each human being in the current state of humanity in the current 
environment that we're, we're in has the possibility by holding that inner line of presence and openness, not jumping into the reactivity of the ego mind or ego self that wants to fix the future and therefore is afraid of the future, but hangs out right here softly, yeah? Softly as the open hand, yeah? In that, there is the opportunity, the possibility for that individual to awaken out of the dream of ego self. Now, it's not the awakening that the spiritual seeker imagines that's gone down the path of Advaita or non-duality, because not everyone in the world is going to follow that path. But there's a kind of evolutionary impulse now that makes this awakening much more available to everybody in, in the midst of what's happening in the world as a stressor, yeah? To hang out right here and not buy into the agitation, to remain right here. And in that, awakening becomes a natural human condition <laughs> yeah a natural yeah we, we return to our authentic humanity yeah, it's almost like spirituality and humanity come together and i sense that that is the evolutionary impulse that is happening now and and i i i i i I kind of know it is, if you like, because I work with so many people. And whilst I'm a non-dual teacher and a spiritual teacher and all that, I'm actually speaking to people about their everyday lives and not holding up some carrot of awakening down the spiritual path when you've had the major aha experience. In fact, I'm debunking all of that because it's here right now in every moment. Every moment is an opportunity. And all there is, is a reflection and a recognition of that. Now you said, is it binary? Do you mean by that? Is it black and white? Is it all or nothing? <laughs> Saved or damned? <laughs> I think it's, it's a weaving in and out for a while until it becomes total. <laughs> oh, amazing, thank you. Um, I'm wondering if we can go back uh, into the biography this period of time led you to India and to Osho, which I presume is where you received the name Amodama Jivan. Yes. Yeah. So I'm wondering if you could talk about your time in India. It was also quite transformational from what I understand. Um, and also about Osho. Mm, yeah. Again, something I don't often talk about. I'm not really asked about this and it's not, you know, it's not primary in, in, in either, you know, in my work, although, Having said that, India was, uh, I went to India many, many, many times uh, over again, probably a period of about seven years. Um, uh, I think I counted, it was about 20 times or 25 times, I can't remember. Um, so I did spend a lot of time there. I was just drawn there again, uh, synchronicity, meet one person, it takes you there, it takes you there. Um, 
India itself was a great big teaching. India invites a deep surrender. <laughs> you know, never having been there, never having been to Asia. Again, it was the early 90s. Um, I think it's changed quite a bit since then. It's the much more development and tourists. And yeah, and I'm sure from the 90s, you know, from the 60s to the 90s, it's changed a lot. But it was still, you know, I, I managed to find the wild places. And um, I learned to meet my fear. <laughs> that was the first inkling. Um, uh, incredible fear because I traveled alone and incredible fear because I went to remote places and so on and so on. Um, the, so it was the beginning of my own journey of surrender to life. Just allowing life to carry me, guide me, whatever the conditions and circumstances. And very quickly that led me to Osho's ashram. Now he wasn't in his body, but he'd only just left his body, I think three or four years prior to that. So it was still very vibrant. Now it has completely changed since then. It's become an institution, <laughs> um, but it was still very free and open at the time and filled with his vibration. Now I wasn't looking for a guru and I wasn't looking for anything, but something drew me. And I think the two things. One was the meditations themselves. There were so many meditation practices and so many body-centered, breath-centered meditation practices. And I totally took to that. So I loved it. And so, um, and then there was just this field of, I guess, love and that had already opened up in me. And so I, I went, uh, for several months at one point um my relationship was difficult so I it sort of came to an end although we picked it up again so I went on my own really essentially to find myself whatever that meant um and I spent many months there and I meditated about I tried five six that's all I did all day long. This meditation, that meditation, Zen meditation, nighttime meditation, daytime meditation, dynamic meditation, everything, everything, everything for months and months and months. <laughs> Something must have happened. <laughs> because two days before I was to leave back to London, there was a naming ceremony and I wasn't looking for a new name. But it was the very last thing, if you like, that I was, that opened up for me to be part of. And I thought, why not? I'll try it out. I was very experimental then. So I went in and this beautiful ceremony, Sanya ceremony, and they gave me this name and I felt completely emptied out. And like a newborn and this name on this piece of paper didn't mean anything Amoda was really strange and so I thought well I don't know I just put the piece of paper in my pocket and I went uh, out to there was a rooftop party now I wasn't drinking or smoking no drugs had been happening uh, that, that had long long gone 
yeah so I wasn't in that so I was very clean and open and I was just beaming something had happened and, and I, I stayed up all night just dancing totally naturally and people were coming up to me and going wow there's light streaming from you and then at some point in the morning I still wasn't tired I went walking down the streets, yeah, the back streets of India, and it was four o'clock in the morning and the sun was rising. And these little children, these little beggar children, three, four years old, came running from the streets and they put their hand on my third eye and they said, Ma. And there was like golden light streaming from me. And it was a completely like expanded it's like my chakras all opened up and then eventually I went to sleep and I woke up the next day and it sort of came back to more mundane reality I still felt like something had happened and the next day I was on a plane back to London and when I got back to London it's like my perception had shifted again and I was a still point of consciousness having a human experience and from that point on everything was scenery but I wasn't detached from it so it's like my it's like fear had gone and all what there was was this beautiful surrender to what is and my relationship was terrible and we carried on battling it out and there was physical violence and it was horrible and my living circumstances were not great I still had no money and I still had you know I was living in a loft space and you know digging in skips for bits of furniture and bits of wood so and I still didn't know what was to happen to my life and what I was to do but there was no concern and a few years later something <laughs> something shifted that was not cosmic, was not mystical, but woke me up fundamentally out of the dream of self. And then that's a whole other journey, <laughs> which I then wrote about in my book, Embodied Enlightenment, that's many years later. That was the abyss, yeah. That was the abyss of being. But it wasn't, uh, like I say, it stopped being a mystical experience or a transcendent experience or a chakra opening experience. It was a very clear seeing of the mechanism of mind that pulls into the next moment, that looks for hope in the next moment, or tries to run away from that black hole that opens up in aloneness. And I saw it, and I remained absolutely still. And in that moment, I died. It was a real, it felt like an experience of death, not physical death, obviously, psychological death. The self disappeared into emptiness and then it merged into totality. And then I know I am life. Life and I are one. Love and I are one. And from that moment, everything changed. <laughs> no more victim, no more structure of the self, yeah, the subtle identity of self had gone. Yeah.
And then there was no more practices, no more methods, no more therapy, no more meditation. Everything came to an end. Just the incredible freshness of direct experience, not knowing. I didn't go, oh, ha, 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 I'm enlightened now. I didn't, no, no, no. I just met life. But I noticed over a period of time that everything was fundamentally different. It's like the me, <laughs> the me that was a problem, because I was still a problem to myself. The me, the feelings, the experience, the sensations, you know, that had been a problem were no longer a problem. So it's like the self with its concern for itself completely evaporated. And so it remained. Fascinating. Yeah. You know, we've, we're coming to the end of our time and uh, I must petition you, I think, for a sequel. Because this is, uh, we've reached the abyss and we've stared into the abyss briefly. We've glimpsed the abyss anyway with you. <laughs> but it hasn't yet looked back. And uh, what I mean to say, of course, is that there, there's much more to the, the story after that. What happened afterwards? You talk a lot about that, actually, how to, I suppose, navigate or what happens after such an experience. You've written a lot about that. You've taught a lot about that. Um, so I'd love to discuss that with you, perhaps in a sequel. Also, mm. your, your own teaching has gone through an interesting development. Your first two books were written really after rather, rather soon after this, this experience. And then there was some 15 years or so um before the next couple of books began to come out so i'm really curious about mm. what evolution took place i think it's very interesting that you have these two uh i suppose if you'll pardon the pun bookends here um or these two uh markers two sets of markers there um also something for for perhaps a sequel if we do that you talk also about the feminine face of awakening and you contrast that with what you've called the patriarchal view of enlightenment or an, an, another um, different dynamic you've described a sort of new age ascendancy uh, paradigm, which you're, you're, con you're, you're talking about something different. You contrast that. So I'd really be very interested in discussing that theme with you in, in more detail. Yeah, so I must petition you for a sequel, Amodama. You don't have to say yes now. <laughs> I will say yes now because I, I would love to. I've, I've thoroughly enjoyed our conversation. I didn't know it would go so deeply into my history um, but it's uh, thoroughly enjoyable and I hope valuable for listeners and I, and I think yes that is a part two because it's it's a well not a different story but it's uh, yeah it's more recent it's close to what's what's here now and, and I'd love to explore that with you absolutely oh, splendid well uh, until then Amoda Ma thank you very much thank you Steve Thank you for listening to another Guru Viking podcast. For more interviews like these, as well as articles, videos, and guided meditations, visit www.guruviking.com.